0: All right. Well, welcome everyone to the vegetable beat. Um, I'm Ben Whirling, and and as you trickle in, I'll um, be having a little informal conversation with um, Dr. Celeste Welty, who's joining us today. Um, Celeste, how many years have you worked at Ohio State in specialty crops?
1: Thirty-three and one half.
0: Thirty-three and one half. And is today the end of the one half?
1: Yes, it is. (laughs) Well, (laughs) today happens to be my last day, and. Uh,
0: I start retirement tomorrow. Um, in true extension spirit, Celeste did not say no to joining us today, so we are really appreciative. Um, I, and it sounds like you've got some exciting things planned for the future, so it sounds like there are good things to come. I guess I, before I go that far south, I should ask you how things have been in Ohio this spring. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not
1: sure because I really haven't been here this spring until six weeks ago, but... Um, from what I hear, you know, typical Ohio spring, it was winter, then summer, you know, it was a different season every day, um, all kinds of the normal early season problems. Um, but gotcha. I did escape, I was gone for seven months down to South America. So and I only got back six weeks ago. So um, that's why I'm not so much up on um, what was happening here.
0: That's a that's good I hope to be
1: going back sometime relatively soon.
0: And it sounds like if you're looking for peaches or citrus and you're in Uruguay, i probably not pronouncing it right, but you might be able to visit Celeste down there. Sounds really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, all right, everybody, we're going to start off the webcast today. Welcome to The Vegetable Beat. It is June 30th. Um, I'm your host, um, Ben Worling of Michigan State University. Um, Mike Ranky is also from MSU, and he'll be helping the Zoom run smoothly. And today, our guest is Dr. Celeste Welty of The Ohio State University. And we're going to talk about striped cucumber beetle because there's nothing else probably Celeste wanted to talk about on her last day at work than cucumber beetle. So for those of you who are listening, um, we want your questions about organic control of cucumber beetles. Um, Please put them in the chat if you're listening via Zoom, via that link on our website. Or if you're listening via Facebook Live, um, put your questions in the comments. And we will address them as we go and then at the end too. Um, If you are seeking CCA or RUP credits, um, from Michigan, please put your name and email into the chat or Facebook comments. Um and, and with that we can get started. Um and Celeste, I thought I'd just just ask you real quick to introduce um yourself and what you've what you've done for your career. I know you've definitely been a help for me even though I'm in a different state. Um what have you been working on for for 33 and a half years?
1: Mm. Well you know there um, well basically I do I'm supposed to cover all fruit and all vegetables tree fruit small fruit and vegetables um, primarily extension, which is what I really enjoy and also research and then I at the beginning I didn't do teaching but I've also been doing a fair amount of teaching the last um fifteen years or so so within the um, specialty crops, I guess I tend to to gravitate towards the ones that have the most problems. So cucurbits Uh uh, have been one that, you know, have uh, paid a lot of attention to also peppers and sweet corn and Uh apples Uh uh, from, uh, you know, where I've tried to do research, projects as well as um extension work um so you know there are just so many pests and uh so many of them need work it's always hard to choose um uh, you know I've, i've worked on mites and aphids and a whole variety of caterpillars and beetles but you know cucumber beetles are one of the biggies so um i am glad to focus on them today
0: Excellent. I know a few years back, I asked a question on behalf of a grower and you knew you're, you're very helpful. Um, well, you mentioned cucumber beetles. And um, I was just wondering if you could give us kind of a strike cucumber beetle 101. Um, they often seem to appear out of nowhere in the spring. And then maybe you get a little bit of a lull. And then I was just talking with the grower today. It just seems like they're, boop, they're back again. And um, maybe you could just walk us through Um, what striped cucumber beetle is and its life cycle. This is context.
1: Okay. And then we can get into the, there's some lookalikes that make, you know, sometimes you think you're looking at striped cucumber beetle and maybe you're not. Um, So it seems to me it's very much their, their activity in the spring, I think is related to day length because, you know, we might have warm springs and it's not like they show up early in warm springs. It's more like Memorial Day. Um, they huh. show up for like, oh, so many times when we went and planted a trial right before Memorial day weekend, or at least in Ohio, maybe it's a few days later in Michigan, you know, then come back at the end of the three day weekend and your crop is gone. Um, (laughs) Because they're often like right around that time, we get this huge flush of activity. So it seems to be related to day length. So, you know, it's that's we have to really focus Well, we can talk more about, you know, other tactics, but that Memorial Day is so critical, you know, whether you're talking direct seeded or transplanted, you know, that's usually the the hardest time of year. Um, Then can we get into the bacterial wilt now also?
0: absolutely yeah
1: Yeah. so of course as as most any any experienced grower would know or even a barely experienced grower uh, um they are pests for a number of of different terrible reasons one is just their actual (laughs) feeding you know they can defoliate they can kill young plants just because there's so many of the beetles and they they feed voraciously but then if that's not bad enough they transmit this terrible disease called bacterial wilt um so a key thing about their life cycle and biology it's um last I heard, it's estimated that in the spring when you get that big flush of beetles, probably only uh-huh. about 1% of the population is carrying that bacterium in its gut like it over the beetles overwinter as adult beetles down uh-huh. you know in um, hiding spots in you know uh, plant remnants or tree lines or whatever and uh-huh. so they're alive, just hunkered down um, underneath stuff. And these bacteria are in their gut, but maybe only like 1% of the population. So, um, and they're already bad enough when it's only 1%, um, but it's a relatively low percent. So that's when it's, you know, this probability game. So when you see them, you know, maybe 99 out of 100, they're still doing feeding damage, but not transmitting the wilt. But then that Uh 1% that might be infected with the bacteria, they really are causing problems. Um, uh-huh. Another thing, a lot of people are aware that they transmit the disease. And a lot of people, somehow, when you think of disease and insect vectors, you think like um, aphids, uh-huh. and it's all uh-huh. about the mouth parts, you know, the aphid sticks its mouth part in the plant and transmit that virus. Not with beetles. With these beetles, it's the other way around. The um, the way the vi- <laughs> sorry, I hope I didn't yeah. So with aphids, it's a virus. In the case of beetles, it's a bacterium. So the way it happens with the beetles, they chew on the plant, you know, make that ragged hole, but then the bacteria only gets in there through the feces. So they have to stick around long enough on that leaf to defecate. And and they so you have to have the feces and then these bacteria in the feces, and then you have to have enough moisture that it can sort of wash down into that wound. So the most common wound is the one that the beetles themselves made by their Feeding. Uh-huh. Um, so, if you have those different elements, you know, a wound, some moisture, feces that do contain the bacteria, then you get this wilt started. Uh-huh. Um, and then later in the season, it's thought. Now, I've never done this kind of work, but um, people that have say, then that number jumps up to more like about ten percent of the in midsummer, maybe ten percent of the population is uh-huh. then carrying the bacterium. So the probability of getting it is a little lower early in the season, but yet that's when the numbers of beetles are just so huge. We have this Damn one it. class classic picture I took years ago when we, uh, it was in a conventional um, field where we had treated with admire uh-huh. and under a single seedling, like a, there were about 75 dead beetles. Wow! So, I mean, that is the kind of pressure that we can be under. I mean, it's really hard to, and then, you know, it's hard enough for conventional to deal with it organic, you know, it's even tougher. So that's sort of the overview, you, you know, it's that early season damage, then they tend to peter off in around mid June. Uh, then we get that new generation sometime in mid summer. But when you mention you're seeing a lot of beetles just recently, what I wonder in Ohio, it's usually right around the first of July, we start getting the Western corn rootworm beetle.
0: And oh. A lot
1: of people get confused between the Western corn rootworm beetle. It's also sort of striped, but its it's stripes are a little bit less um, straight, they're a little bit wavy. And, huh. and the stripes are a little wider, but it has a yellow belly. So our cucumber beetle is a little smaller, and it has a black belly and very nice sharp stripes. Um, this Western corn rootworm beetle, you know, a little larger yellow belly, and the stripes not so distinct. But the key thing is the Western corn rootworm beetle, as best we know, is not a vector of the disease. So then, you know, usually the plants are bigger by then they, they can withstand some damage these guys all prefer, as soon as the flowers are there, all they want to do is eat the flowers. They don't really care about the leaves anymore. So, you know, the plant, so I still think the challenge is getting them through that seedling stage. When the plant is small, the beetles are so numerous. um, And, you know, once we get those later beetles, they can be a little more manageable. Um,
0: Got it. So they kind of, it sounds like they kind of have an internal calendar. And um, as we're changing from White too. I can't remember the fashion. You know, after after Labor Day, you don't wear white. I don't know what to do <laughs> Memorial Day, but <laughs> the the beetles come out when we're opening our pools. Maybe, maybe that's what. And they have a low percentage of the pathogen in their gut. And but just even though it's low, because there's so many of them, that's that's the period when you can you really need to protect the plants.
1: Right.
0: Right. Got it. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask you, Celeste. We are talking about bacterial well, wilt, and I know there are different types of cucurbits that vary in susceptibility. I was just thinking before we go, if you had to divide up the cucurbits into like a couple camps, saying these get it worse than these, what, what would they be?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much just two camps. So the two camp camps. that really is in trouble is um, the cucumbers and the mel- and um, muskmelon cantaloupe. Muskmelons. They are both extremely susceptible. Uh, we have to be careful not to say melon because watermelons are okay. Um, but then in the less susceptible, we have the pumpkins and any of the squash, the winter squash, summer squash are um, generally in the older literature. It says they don't get it at all, but we know that's not hmm. true. We know in the last couple decades that the squash and pumpkins can get bacterial wilt. They just seem to not get quite as lethal a case. Like, you know, they'll sort of, they'll look like they're wilting down. They look like they're starting to die, and then they perk back up and, you know, um, sure. but we, we have definitely seen them die. So um, they can get it. But it's if you're a cucumber or cantaloupe grower is they're the ones that have to really, really be very careful or they often lose like the whole crop.
0: Got it. Well, maybe as we move forward about controls, if there's any riffs on the, what you would do in one camp versus the other, we can talk about those. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said early on is an important period um, for control, and in conventional systems, we've got that amiter seed treatment. And I think I've seen your famous picture, and probably used it in the extension talk. But uh, of the one of
1: all the dead beetles, you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful <laughs> picture. Yeah. Um, um, but in organic systems, we don't have that. Um, and so we're left with our cultural controls and, our, and, and maybe some chemical controls. Um, and you, you had mentioned um, trap cropping when we were talking before um, before we joined today. And that's something that I, I've read about. It's an interesting concept, but I've never seen it in practice. And I just wondered if you could um, maybe explain the concept and talk about whether that's something – that could be usable if you're a small or big grower.
1: Okay. Yeah. So we'll go ahead. I'll answer that. We'll talk about trap cropping. I should say like really for organic growers, there are probably two tactics I would recommend before trap cropping. Um, so it. if we can get to them in a few minutes, I'd really like to talk about delayed planting and talk about uh, row covers. Um, for our trap cropping, we did a lot of that work. We were targeting in that project, not so much organic growers, but more t- uh, transitional people that were trying not you know, to be conventional, but they really weren't all the way organic. So the way what we have done with trap cropping is we put the sensitive crop, like we did all this with cantaloupe, we'd put cantaloupes in the main plot, and then we would surround it on all four sides by a perimeter trap crop of squash. And we've tried different squashes. I think uh, most of our work was with one called buttercup. Not butter uh-huh. buttercup squash. Uh-huh. Um, some other work has been done with um, like the giant uh, New England Blue Hubbard is another one, but some people have trouble selling those. Um, so the idea with the perimeter trap crop is to use a crop that's slightly more attractive because the cucumber beetles just love those squashes and to do it earlier so a really key so we would go in um and again that you know, takes a little bit of work you know organizing your weed management and your field preparation uh-huh. and all that but you got to go in 2 weeks earlier and plant that perimeter we always did it as transplants rather than direct seeding but you could do it either way and um so just two rows all the way around uh get those established and th- um then 2 weeks later inside the main plot you put you transplant your uh cantaloupe uh-huh. um but That's why we did several different projects with this. We were initially, we were using admire um, in that trap crop. Uh, So we were, we were actually, what we were trying to do is not use admire in the main crop, but use it in the trap crop. So that's why it really, the way we did it, it wasn't, you know, completely suitable for an organic farm. Got but it. then another year we decided like, okay, some people are really against admire. Let's just try doing it. And we did really large plots. Cause that was another question of, you know, does this work only in small plots or do you have larger plots? So we had much larger plots and we tried doing it without admi- We were, I think still using insect, um, not, organic insecticides but not admire and it was not nearly as successful so we had had pretty good results when we did use something like admire that just really nails them um the uh the tactic really looked like it was pretty good um but not when you know when we took the admire out it really was not working as well uh and there's another chemical we could talk about but maybe we should leave that to later um one of the brand names is Evergreen, where it's uh, it's not on the Omri list. It's close. It's like almost on the Omri list, huh. but not but not quite. And we found we tried using that very aggressively, and it was doing a good job. But it's not, you know, it wouldn't be Omri certified.
0: Oh, but do you want? Should
1: we go back maybe and talk about the other two tactics? The absolutely the, um, that'd be great. Planning. Okay, so I know a couple of years ago I was at a, a winter meeting, and this grower came up to me, this woman, and said, "Well." I did what you told me to. And it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. And I didn't remember her. I I just said like, (laughs) what did I suggest you do? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she said, you told me to delay planting. And she said, it was so hard. You know, spring was here. I wanted to plant, but you said, you know, delay. And she said, I did it. And she said, it is the easiest time I've had with cucumber beetle in years. She said it really worked, but she said it was so hard. <laughs> it was so hard. <laughs> so I think she said she delayed to like mid June. So the idea, you know, everybody wants to plant in May and they just really want to do it. Um, but if you don't plant and surely somebody in your neighborhood has planted and that's where the cucumber beetles are. So, um, oh. so I really think, you know, of course it, it affects marketing and all that, you You know, everybody wants to have their produce out first, but I do think it can help uh, if you can pass. And again, it depends on the crop, especially pumpkins. You know, we have so many pumpkin growers, their pumpkins are ready to pick and looking beautiful around the first of August, and then they're struggling to keep them good until Halloween. Uh So, you know, is it maybe a, a, a better tip for a pumpkin grower? Um, but oh, if you can just delay, because, you know, we just picture that Memorial Day and that big flush right before and after Memorial Day. If you can just wait it out, um, I think that's a very appropriate tactic for an organic grower.
0: That's really interesting. So um, most growers are probably not opening their pools, but if you are opening your pool, just sit in there and relax for a little while and, and, and wait till you get past that flush. And that's something that, yeah, for certain crops, it might be doable if you've gotten short enough maturity time and you can... Um, and cucumber beetles are a big enough problem, that seems a, a very doable thing compared to something like a trap crop or 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 even row covers.
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, if you really wanted to dig in deeper, you can actually then incorporate that with another a, sort of a slightly different way of doing a trap crop that, you know, if like, even if you're organic and you were never going to put a toxic chemical like in the soil on your farm, but you might be willing to put a toxic chemical in a potted plant that's completely contained.
0: Huh?
1: See where I'm going? So, uh, especially on a small scale, we've suggested that if people, you know, just had a potted squash plant and put that out early, so it is attracting those early beetles. But you douse that potted plant um, with Admire. Um, so you know, you're. It's not going in your soil. It's not going in uh-huh. anything you're going to be selling or eating. Um, but if it's just enough to draw those beetles off and keep them away from your crop, you know, that can be used in conjunction with the, um, or, you know, it's a different principle, but still getting to that whole idea. How do you manage them? How do you manage that surge? Um, You know, either wait till the surge is over. That's the delayed planting.
0: Uh Or
1: try and do something with that trap cropping during the surge to just reduce them.
0: So pull them away or, yeah, but try and avoid the time of there, or try and pull them away. Um, and then the last thing that we that you mentioned is keep them off with the row cover. Have, right? Um, could you describe how that works and what its pros can, sure. and what its limitations are?
1: Yeah, so that's one of the main tactics we we evaluated in great detail a few years ago. I mean, I got to say right up front, anyone. You know, most organic growers probably have used them at some point. They are a pain in the neck. I mean, nobody likes to use row covers. They, uh-huh. they you know, it's a pretty high maintenance thing, but they do work. Um, the idea is, you know, you have this um, thin, um I can't think of what it's called spun bond polyester. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're different weights. Some people are familiar with it. Only the heavier type it's used for frost protection. And that also works for insects, but it's um, it can get a little hot under there in the summer. And then there's a real lightweight. Like with one brand name is, uh, you know, with the Agribon, Agribon 15 is the lighter weight. That's just for insect control. Like an Agribon 30 Mm -hmm. is for the frost protection. So Mm -hmm. the idea is if you put these on the very same day that you either direct seed or transplant, and either with or without hoops, we've done it both ways. Um, huh. And the idea is, you know, you just cover that area up so that when those beetles are, they still know that those plants are under there, but they can't get in. Um, so we, we did uh, all of the work we did with that was um, pretty much with uh, cantaloupe. Uh-huh. And we found with cantaloupe, that was a good way to get them through. But then that's only until flowering. So then by the time the cantaloupes are starting to put out their flowers, they're really about bursting through almost literally bursting through Uh some of the row covers, but it's just so a physical exclusion. The idea is you're just, and you know, even though row covers is probably the cheapest and most readily available, you could use other materials, you know, like screening, any kind of, um, you know, barrier um, over the plants. Um, Also, even if some people are transplanting uh, and growing their own plug plants a really susceptible time can be when the little plug plants are still in the plug trays. And you're like, say you have them outside, you're trying to harden off your plug plants before you transplant. And if the cucumber beetles move into those plug trays, you know, you can get wiped out. So even just like a little piece of uh, row cover over those plug trays can be very, very helpful if it's during that surge period, you know, that susceptible time. So, um, so really that's all there is to it with real, You have to, I always carry a roll of duct tape with me. You know, they're always like little rips and there's uh-huh. issues, you know, how do you, how do you attach them to the ground? Um, you can use garden staples, which is what we typically do. You can um, use sandbags, which was also we've done at some farms. If you have some, something, somebody told me uh, the best thing is if, if you know a, If you know any firemen that have like uh, retired pieces of fire hose, it's sort of like a nice long piece of something pretty heavy and you can put that down or at least like usually you have one side is sort of always closed. You never open it. And maybe the opposite side, you have something you can move back because you got to get under there. you got to weed under there. you got to uh-huh. see what's going on under there. So, um, you know, you want to have one side of it that's sort of removable. Um, uh-huh. But we found that, you know, it really gets them through. Um, because the another thing I didn't mention back in the intro, at least what we know on pumpkins, and I'm guessing it's true on the other cucurbits, is the plant is most susceptible to the disease, the bacterial wilt disease, when it's very young like supposedly the cotyledon stage plants are the most susceptible. And then as the plants get older, they are somewhat less. I mean, they definitely can still get sick when they're older, Uh but they're somewhat less susceptible. So, um, so again, anything, these row covers, that's another advantage that just, it lets the plants get up and established and, you know, maybe able to withstand um, some some defoliation better.
0: Gotcha. Um, So it's all about doing, doing the best you can to keep, keep those plants healthy until you get past the surge and maybe they gain some tolerance to the pathogen. And um.
1: and actually another, th- well, so then another thing we need to talk about in a minute is then, okay, so that's until flowering, but then what about yes. it? So we can talk about that. The other thing that reminds me of though is uh, the crazy things entomologists do. Um, it seems to me that once cucumber beetles find a field and like in early summer and settle down, they tend to really just stay there. So I've had some experiments ruined because uh, for some reason, we had to plant late, like really late, like a trial had something wrong with it and we had to redo it. And like, I couldn't get, I actually, I had to go out and like collect massive numbers of beetles from another (laughs) field. And I had to bring them over to my new field and release them because I needed beetles in the new field. So again, I think maybe that's part of our luck with the row covers was related to that, that um, by the time those row covers come off, which I think was like early July, if I remember, um, that by that, there's still a lot of beetles around, but they just don't seem to move around as much. You know, they're They've, pretty happy wherever they ended up.
0: They found their home. Huh. And it's not in your, not in your cucurbits.
1: <laughs> so um. should we go into them? What about after the row covers come off?
0: Absolutely, and and um, and also just and so I've I've gotten to know some larger organic growers, and at that larger scale, you don't you can't do row covers. So I think.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you see pictures in California of uh, you know, uh, I don't know how typical it's it true. You do see pictures of that's you know true. some there. There is a mechan actually there was some an ag engineer out at Iowa State has been working on a larger like a mechanized. um, Cover. cover, Yeah. So it's, yeah, but I mean, I agree. It's, it, it's the smaller you are, the better suited it is. Um, so any, yeah, like I say, it is a pain in the neck, yeah, but it does work. It works. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that, that would be great. So that's, we could talk about what do you do when the covers come off, Um, yeah. or if you don't have them to begin with. Yeah, I was going to
1: say the same answer is really applied to if you didn't have row covers to begin with. So then to begin with. Yeah. So really what we're getting into is the chemical question.
0: So, yeah.
1: um, we did some work in our row cover trials. Um, we looked at a few different things, but re- what we were sort of homing in on was surround. That Actually, we had pretty good, although we had tried in a, previous trials, we had tried relying primarily on surround. And I, I, my initial thoughts, I was not that impressed with it. But in the, the cantaloupe work where we did start with row covers and then needed something afterwards, we really had... Um, pretty good results with the surround. So surround is that stuff. is like whitewash for plants. You know, um, it's like a kale. So it's not killing the beetles. It's just making the plants unattractive to beetles. Now, of course, one downside of that, you have all this white residue on your fruit, which of course the average person looking at that would say, oh my gosh, it's contaminated with, Uh but you know, um, as long as you educate your consumers, um, you know, that is an option. We did, we also did some work with, um, in trust, which is a spinosid, and it generally didn't do quite as well we tried it both alone and in combination with this other attractant called um, sidetrack d that's supposed to be very uh-huh. very attractive to cucumber beetles so it did okay but i mean we definitely we were still losing quite a few of those plants to bacterial wilt so gotcha. so really they're they're not a whole lot of um you know great options out there um one thing I wish I had looked at at the time. The last year or two, I've had a few little experiences with one of the neem products. That's the neem extract. It's called azadiracan,
0: uh-huh. and
1: I have been very surprised at how well it has worked, especially against some really bad flea beetle problems. But I have not tried it uh-huh. on, cu- on cucumber beetles because it's supposed to work, you know, best against immatures, and these are not immatures; they're adults. That's beetles. interesting. Um, but make sure people know that. Uh, in the neem world, there's neem oil is the best known product. There are all kinds of neem oils, and then there's neem extract. To me, they are worlds apart. I have huh. never been able to get neem oil to, to control anything. I just huh. for insects. I just I just think it is not effective. Um, but this neem extract, and there are several different brands out there, uh-huh. um, I have been impressed with. So if I were still doing this work. I would really want to take a look at one of the azadiractin products um, for beetle control. Yeah. We also, one of our colleagues in in Iowa was where I think they were more focused on the diseases. They were using Trilogy, which is a mix of some oils. And um, we just found Trilogy didn't work. We've also tested Mycotrol, which is a a fungal type of um, insecticide. Uh-huh. Um, didn't work well. And then we tried all of those in combination with this attractant called sidetrack. D. The, the idea the sidetrack is like a feeding stimulant. So the beetle really, really wants to eat whatever's there. Something and, good? yeah. And you know, it'll eat whatever insecticide we're putting out as well as this attractant.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and they, uh, we all, we got a little bit of an increase, um, but still out of those tests, the one that really did look the best was in trust, but it's not like, you know, it's not like it got 95% of the beetles, you know, there, there were definitely some beetles that that weren't getting killed.
0: So in trust by itself, Celeste did do some.
1: Yeah, it did do good. some. Uh, and oh. you know, it's, it's quite expensive, but. Um, exact. You know. And um, I can't remember how often we applied. I think we were doing it like every week. It wasn't just um, a single, a single shot.
0: So it's tough. So the surround mentioned, um, so does that work? Basically, does it muck with their mouth parts or is it a repellent or it masks the smell or,
1: um, um, I don't know exactly for this beetle. Um, you know, they just say in general, it makes the plants unattractive or like, um, you know, like the beetles, they think they know what they're looking for and they're not finding it because it's just all this gotcha. gunk. Um, I think beetles don't tend to have as many like hairs and stuff on their, uh, legs, like some of the, um, the leafhoppers do because it can gunk up those hairs. Um, So, but it probably could still gunk up the leg of a, of a cucumber beetle. And, you know, the idea is, have you ever worked with surround at all?
0: No, I haven't. I've just seen, Pictures of whitewashed leaves, as you say,
1: because if you do it once a week, like basically the very first week, it's only just like a very light, light whitewash, but then every single, you keep doing it every week and it keeps, you know, you lose a little bit due to rain, but in general, it just keeps building up. So you get, you know, more and more and more of the res you know, the, the thicker that layer of stuff gets, then the the more effective it is. Although, you know, now one thing, or go ahead.
0: Oh, go ahead, Celeste. Finish your thought, Well, I was just
1: thinking, the other thing we didn't really talk about, (laughs) it's hard enough getting through the beginning of the season, and then sort of right now we're talking more about the middle of the season, but one thing we haven't talked about yet Uh is the end of the season. So another, or at least with pumpkins, I think one of the toughest times of years on pumpkins is once we get roughly around the 1st of September, when the flowers really are, the plants are no longer putting out many flowers. And these beetles all the beetles really care about is the flowers. That's just where they want to be. So, you know, for yeah. all midsummer and late summer, the beetles or I mean, the flowers are full of beetles, beetles are happy, and they're not really hurting too much at that point. But then right around in late summer, the plants stop producing the flowers and the beetles are still around. So what do they do? They move to the rinds, you know, you know, the handles or the, the stems of the fruit and the rinds. And, you know, it's it's sort of erratic, but I mean, we've seen pumpkins just... I mean, sometimes it's just cosmetic damage. Sometimes it's a lot more than cosmetic. They're just like deep, you know, diving, Uh. penetrating into the, um, into the fruit. So that's another thing, you know, you have to be on the lookout, you know, sometimes some fields you just, you know, it's very minor, nothing to worry about, but others, you know, it can be really bad. Um, and then that's when you get some of the, in late season, you get the spotted cucumber beetle joining in and it can, you know, be a terrible problem. So, um, So anyway, you know, it sort of depends on which crop and how long you're harvesting it. But there are some of the late season issues can be pretty, pretty severe.
0: And that would be if surrounds, which sounds like of the things you tested was most effective, but you don't want to whitewash your fruit. So that would be tough.
1: Right. I have this one picture of a fruit that had been treated something like, I don't know, like 20, I think actually on one trial, we might have sprayed twice a week. And um, it had been through several, then we had stopped spraying it had been through several heavy rainstorms and it was still so white and we actually like scrubbed it with a brush. So, yeah, I oh, mean, man. yeah. So really probably surround is better, more like it, it peaked early time season. and not just keep using it and using it. But um,
0: so Celeste, we had a question for you. Oh, um, okay. The question is coming from Kathy. Kathy, thanks for your question. And Kathy wondered if you could talk about application of beneficial nematodes and specifically what, the good, a good timing for them would be.
1: Yeah. Okay. So usually when people ask that, they, they're probably talking about soil application. Um, so one part mm-hmm. of the life cycle, we didn't talk about at all. So we taught all the adult cucumber beetle is all above ground, but when they lay uh-huh. there, so in this around Memorial day, while at the same time, they're devastating and feeding on your leaves, they are also laying eggs at the base of the plant and the, lar- uh-huh. the little, the little larvae of the cucumber beetles spend their life, their larval life down In the soil. They nibble on the roots, but usually they don't cause problems to the roots. So um, there has been a little bit of work somewhere, I think it was in Pennsylvania, um, about uh, using nematodes for that. And I believe it has been effective. Uh, I did have a student who worked on nematodes, but in a very different part of the system. She was interested in spraying nematodes into the. We were really focused on that concentration in the flowers, like because that's where all the beetles were. Uh So she did find that the nematodes sprayed in the flowers were effective, but we were sort of worried about bee issue. You know, we we ended up not, you know, really extending that um, information a lot because we were just afraid that. In, you know, maybe with bee issues, it's, it's not the greatest idea. Um, and again, and I haven't kept up, I, you know, they're all different nematodes. So I'm sure one species is probably better suited than another. So anyway, I would say that that is a tactic worth looking at, you probably want to get the timing right. So you, you know, if those eggs are hatching, probably right around early June, and the larvae are down there, that's probably when you'd want to apply the nematodes would be, you know, roughly early summer and not wait until midsummer when, um, you know, they're probably already fully grown and might not be as susceptible. So does
0: that
1: that answer that question? Hopefully,
0: it does. It does. So it sounds like it would be a multi-year type thing. You're trying to reduce the population over time.
1: Yeah. And actually, that does remind me of a a whole separate topic. If uh, could we talk about parasitoids?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just
1: because one of the, um, it just reminds me of a really interesting anecdote one year. So there is a, a common parasitoid, a tiny, uh, a fairly small fly that attacks the striped cucumber beetle. And I had the same student, graduate student who um, did work on nematodes also worked on this fly. It doesn't have a common name. It's just called Celatoria. So and then <laughs> just last summer, I had another student who did a little bit of work on Celatoria. So it's this little fly, looks a lot like a house fly. And as the, if you can picture a cucumber beetle just on a plant, and then it starts to fly away, it sort of lifts its wings, its front wings, and flies away. It flies and this, up into the sun. And this fly knows how to land on the beetle right at that point. And wow. The beetle is sort of lifting its upper wings. Um, this fly stings it and lays an egg in there. So um, this student back in I, it was like 2005 did a survey at a lot of farms in ohio and we've found anywhere it's usually like 10 percent of the beetles but i told her that when she was first starting i said you've got to go to this one farm because at the end of the previous year i had been at this farm like in september and i had been just wherever i'd go i'd collect like 100 beetles and then bring them back to the lab and you just hold them in a jar and see within a week how many blow up they literally like they blow apart and this <laughs> parasitoid emerges. Um, but this one site had had, it was like 35% parasitism. It was really, really high. So I told her like, wow. you got to make sure and go to this farm. It was actually a university farm down in Hillsborough. I said, make sure and go to Hillsborough and collect beetles. Cause there are a lot of parasitoids there. So she got back from that first trip and said, well, I had good luck everywhere. So except that one farm you told me to go to, she <laughs> said, I went there and I couldn't find a single beetle. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, that's pretty interesting if you couldn't find a single beetle, like wow. that might mean that that was the carry, you know, if they had had enough parasitism at the end of that previous year, oh,
0: that it really did
1: knock the population down. So I think it it really is important to um, to enhance that. The only thing uh, the same student did a little work on like flowers. We think you know if you have flowers at your border of the crops. She specifically had nasturtium and facelia, uh, which is called purple uh-huh. tans- purple tansy. Um, uh-huh. Seem to be, you know, we're just trying to prolong the life of the um, the little flies. So it's it's a fairly common um, parasitoid, um,
0: oh, and I
1: just think, um, yeah, most people don't know it's there, but it is.
0: So there, yeah, there's beneficials in the background that that could be helping, helping even though we don't notice them. Cool. Well, um, I wanted to ask you, I had two last questions. One. Um, one is about pyganic. I was just curious if if you had any experience with it. I know that some of our growers have tried it and um, landed on their own conclusion. I just wondered if you had tried it because it's kind of our closest organic analog to to our good old seven or 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 you know whatever we use in conventional systems.
1: Yeah, I've tried pyganic a number of times at the maximum rate, and often. I. I am, it's not something I recommend. Uh, It it doesn't seem to do much. Um, Now it's cut. That's why it's a shame. It has this cousin product called Evergreen. That's the same exact active ingredient, but with another active ingredient in there mixed in that's a synergist called PBO. And if you have that same active ingredient, but with the synergist mixed in, it works great. But the organic people don't approve of the synergist, even though the synergist originated. It's an extract of sassafras. Like it's it's it's, really? an imita- it's an imitation of an extract from sassafras. So you know it's not allowed in organic. But you know, in my opinion, it's awful darn close to organic. Um, and it's just that synergist allows the chemical to not get broken down. The problem is pyganic breaks down extremely rapidly. Almost as soon as it enters the body, the body can detoxify it. So you never get any toxic action. So oh. I, um, I would much rather use Entrust or, you know, like I said, as a extract, I think is the other one that, that deserves uh, a closer look, but I just, I mean, maybe pyganic must kill something, but I've tested it on a number of different pests and Whoa. it,
0: Um, it's exactly what you said. The growers noticed that the beetles look like they took a whiff of something and they get knocked down, but they come back. So, um, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you as a last question, if you had a kind of put it all together, if you had a dream team program for our susceptible camp and our squash and pumpkin camp, what would it, would it look the same or would it look a little different and what would it be? Mm -hmm.
1: I think maybe the main difference between the two camps is just um, how often you have to do things. Uh, like, especially if you are talking about these sprays, I think the susceptible crops need to be sprayed frequently, especially with these organic products, of course, don't last as long. You know, their residual toxicity is a lot shorter. Um, you know, whereas if you're growing pumpkins or squash, you might use the same products, but, you know, try and stretch the interval out, only do a few applications at the peak time. Gotcha. Um, but I do think, you know, like, well, like I said, a lot, a big factor is the size of the farm. Um, I think row covers really are a sensible solution if you're willing to, you know, put the effort that they require. Um, but they're not very practical once you get into larger farms, but they can Uh be very practical on smaller farms. Uh So, um, those really are the key points. Oh, one, could we bring up one other real short topic real quick is the trap? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, some people might wonder there've been cucumber beetle traps on the market the last few years and I decided to go ahead last summer. I hadn't looked at them for several years and to just get two different brands and test them and you know see how they worked.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: you know they do trap beetles but I think the big problem is com- competition with flowers. There's still flowers on any of these cucurbits are much more attractive. So the only if I were to try again, especially on an organic farm, I would get a lot of the traps and concentrate very early, you know, just that first, say, four weeks, if you had a lot of the traps out there. And also, if you use like a yellow sticky panel, just the yellow alone is attractive. So, the yellow sticky panel plus these lures with the idea to just try and trap them out, but then as soon as the flowers appear, they, um, huh. the beetles are just not very interested in the traps. So So, I'm not, I'm mildly enthused. I'm not wildly enthused about them, but, you know, it might be something that can help. Um, particularly so on an organic farm.
0: So you're talking about you're talking about basically a trap crop, except instead of a, a blue hubbard, an actual bait in a sticky card that sucks them in and
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then hopefully kills enough that it, it it helps you a little bit.
1: Yeah. And we had one of the main ingredients in the lure is apparently a clove oil. So I had one student last summer just really liked the idea of making her own lures instead of having to buy them. So she just bought some clove oil and made her own. She just like little vials with cotton wicks. Hmm. Um, but they generally didn't work. I mean, I think I would venture, I think the, the, the commercially available lures are probably easier and a little more effective, but you'll notice the smell. There's a very pungent smell of, um, you know, cloves, um, so, that you know, it might be something to consider. There are a lot of different vendors. If you just type in cucumber beetle lure, you know, there are a lot of companies that'll try and sell them to you. So, anyway, that's just one other idea to try. So, I w- good luck to you guys. Um, you know, growing cucurbits organically is not easy, but it, you know, it can be done, but it takes uh effort.
0: Gotcha. Well, um. Thank you very much, Celeste, for your time today. I have 20 other questions, but I I think we can wrap it up because I know um, you might have other things to do, um, but I really appreciate you being with us today, Celeste. That was very kind of you, and um, I know I learned a lot, um, both both in past and informal communication and today, and, and Thank you for your extension service. I know even in my small neck of the woods, you may not see the impact of your emails, but I can tell you that there are some happy pepper growers and um, happy other crop growers because of some advice that you passed on. So thank you for your service to to us all. You're Um,
1: welcome. And then, you know, I am still going to be, you know, around... uh, Uh, by way of email, even if I'm in South America. So you know, I, it's not like I'm really hoping to be completely cut off. So if there's any way I could help in the future, um, you know, don't hesitate to still send me that email.
0: Okay, Okay? thank you, Celeste. You're welcome. Well, well, thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, All right, guys. Um, This is has been the Vegetable Beat. We broadcast every Wednesday at 1230 um, Central. I'm sorry, 1230 Eastern, 1130 Central. Next week, I encourage you you to join us. We will be joined by Travis Cranmer, a garlic guru. Um, He's going to talk about producing clean garlic seed um, and all the way to scaping. Travis is an interesting guy who works in Ontario, so I'd encourage you to tune in as he chats with Dennis Van Dyke. But please join us any Wednesday now through September at glveg.net slash listen um, or at our Facebook site. Um, And uh, thanks again for joining us, Celeste. And and thanks to you all. We hope you have a good rest of your day and, and a good rest of your week.